This has to be one of the hardest introductions to an episode that I have ever recorded. I hope you're all staying safe, and I hope you're all doing as well as can be under the given circumstances. As the situation unfolds, for me personally, one of the most challenging things to grapple with has really been just the inequality that is now being exposed in front of us. I mean, we all know these things have existed in policies that we have in place, but I feel like we've all just really been forced to pay attention to what those policies really mean to people's lives as individuals and the impact it has on families, and as we're seeing today, the impact that this is having on the larger community. It's really my hope that we don't let this crisis go to waste and that when this pandemic is over, we just all go back to business as usual. It's really my hope that through this pandemic, we are able to learn to be advocates for what we need and for, more importantly, what other people need as well. We are really learning every single day what these pain points are and how these pain points are just so different for so many different people based on where they live, what their socioeconomic situation is, and just so many other factors. And for a lot of people who create content and who share stories and articles, this has also been a really uncertain time because is it okay to post this? Is this going to offend people? Should I be sharing? Should I just go quiet? I feel like all these things are coming to people's minds. And one of the things I've personally recommended to people is ask your community, ask people, what do you want to see? What do you want to know? How are you feeling? And design from there. I personally believe that this is the ultimate time to take a lesson from Gary Vaynerchuk and help people really think about what their ideas are, what their struggles are, and how they want to design for them by helping people reclaim their creative confidence. One of my favorite books from Gary Vaynerchuk, I think this actually might have been the first book that I read as well, is Jab, 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 Right Hook. And if you've never read it, it's probably a great time to dive in. It's actually a really short read with a bunch of case studies and examples. But basically his whole philosophy is instead of trying to just jump in and ask people, buy this for me, this is what I do, and just pitching yourself or your product – provide people with value. And by value, he uses the analogy of boxing. And so it's like jab is a value. So it's like value, value, value. And then once you put out that much value, people have already kind of built that trust and community with you so that when you do want to sell something or you want to pitch yourself or whatever it is it might be, people are more inclined because they understand what it is that you are bringing to the table. Another one of my favorite authors on this topic is Tom Kelly. And one of the things that Tom Kelly says, it's that, you know, when he talks about creative confidence and just how to build ideas, he says in his book, it's that combination of thought and action that defines creative confidence, the ability to come up with new ideas and the courage to try them out. And it's that courage piece that I think right now people are really leaning into a little bit. People are, a lot of people are really forced into situations where they didn't want to try things before. They may have thought they didn't have the time, but now all of a sudden they really kind of have no choice. And so the value that you can bring, if you have content around that, if you can share around that, you know, which to you may not seem like something valuable, 
but to other people could be. Just having them watch how you do your stories, having them watch the content you're creating. So many people right now are on their phones and on their devices and scrolling through feeds. You'd never know how you just living your day-to-day life could really impact and influence someone at this time. No matter how comfortable you are though with sharing content, sharing ideas just is never really that easy for anyone. Even for the people who are sharing every single day, Each and every single one of us struggles with imposter syndrome, with is anybody even going to read this? Does anybody even care about this? And so one of the most important parts about uniting people around change is being able to build trust with others. And that's what today's guest is going to speak about. How do we create spaces where we feel safe to express our voice, safe to share ideas with vulnerability? And also safe to feel that, hey, just because I'm sharing this idea doesn't mean it's the right idea. It could be wrong. We may need to iterate it. We could try and, oh, this part went really well, but hey, these are the things we need to tweak. And that's where the courage piece really comes in and being able to feel safe enough to do that. So I today, I'm really excited to talk with our guest about how we establish trust with people so that we can shift from this culture where all I want to do is talk about my idea to a culture where once we share ideas around a table, whether it's face-to-face or online as it is for many of us right now in remote environments, it's now gone from being my idea to being our idea that we're all going to contribute to, that we're all going to iterate, and that we're all going to help grow. So today's episode is all about how to build trust and create that culture of collaboration, that culture of change, and that culture where innovation really thrives, a culture where we can feel safe because I imagine many of you, like me, have been on those calls and in those meetings where it's one person who does all the talking or one person who shoots down your idea and makes you feel really horrible and quite honestly usually makes you go quiet. In times like this, where we have panic and uncertainty and we feel like we have to quickly make decisions, it can be even worse. And we can often be so pressed for having to just give a solution and give something out to everybody as leaders that we don't really allow ourselves the time and space to say, you know what, we are in unprecedented times of uncertainty where we may not know the answers, so let's come together and talk about how we're feeling and what we're thinking and what we might be able to design together. So it is my pleasure today to introduce you to Jay Malone, who is the founder and principal facilitator of New Haircut. Now, New Haircut is an innovation strategy firm and global leader in problem framing, which if you have never heard about before, is just the most genius idea, and Jay is going to talk about it today, and he's also going to talk about how New Haircut leads with design sprints. Jay's innovation expertise stems from a unique career that's cross-software development, product management, and design thinking facilitation. And one of the benefits when you have somebody like Jay who spans so many different areas and so many different spaces is you have a really unique lens now into being able to identify gaps that exist that you can design for. And Jay is going to talk today about one of the greatest gaps that he's seen, and that is building that trust between teams. Jay supports product design, research, and innovation teams within Google, Home Depot, Rosetta Stone, and many more. He is also the co-founder of 
of the Innovation Leadership Accelerator. And I'm just really excited to have this conversation with him today because it is just so, so timely. I really hope you guys enjoy it. And please, please, please reach out to us with any questions, thoughts, ideas that you have as you listen in to this episode. Please join me, everyone, in welcoming Jay Malone. How do you navigate change? It's a question we think about often and one that today's world expects us to be comfortable with. The challenge, however, is where do you begin and how do you develop the mindset and skill set to be successful? Welcome everyone to the Sprint to Success with Design Thinking podcast. I'm your host, Saba Kidwai. Join me each week as I share the stories and strategies from the world's leading researchers and practitioners about why they believe the answer lies in practicing design thinking. Hi, Jay, and welcome to Sprint to Success. Hey, Saba. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have you on today. So I would love if you could start off by telling the audience a little bit about what it is that you do and couple areas of interest that you're passionate about helping others with. Okay. Um, well, I call myself these days an innovation coach because consultant feels like such a heavy word that you need to come armed to the teeth with all of the answers. And that's getting more and more challenging to be an expert in all these different things, um, especially with all the recent things happening with coronavirus and just how the conversation is changing. Um, and so innovation coach feels like helping people, but not necessarily having all the answers prescribed for them. Um, and the way that I differentiate consulting versus coaching for your listeners coming from the marketing world, I, I kind of compare them by saying that consulting feels a lot like AdWords. It's like, I want this now, I want the answer, and I want to know exactly how things are going to shape out. And AdWords feels more certain in that way. And coaching is a little bit more like SEO. It's a little bit of a, uh, it's more long tail. You have to make the investment. Um, but when you do, it's organic and it's, it's uh, more fulfilling. And so I like to work with groups that are asking really important questions about what do we want to do next and how does, what does work want to, what do we want work to look and feel like? Um, and by helping them shape the way that work happens, then together they can come up with really new and interesting products and services. I really love that because I think one of the things I want to get into with you a little bit later is your problem framing toolkit. And so many, I think, of the challenges that people are grappling with, even if you think about right now with the coronavirus, you know, literally like city to city, there are different policies and different needs and different solutions people have to design. So that idea of you being able to step in as a coach, I think really allows, I think it just really empowers for the empathy piece to really come up. Have you seen that? Yeah. Um, listening to people is becoming an even more important skill um, because now the form that we can listen to people is, is shrinking a little bit, at least this week and potentially for the next month or so you have to your listening skills are going to be really attuned because the ability to read body language and, and all of those other environmental cues is sort of uh, being stripped away from us so becoming a better listener with the tools that we have available to us is becoming an even more important skill for us 
Absolutely. So I, you know, I had the pleasure of being able to sit through one of your workshops about building trust in innovation. And one of the things that was so just eye-opening to me was how many times just me personally have been placed in a collaborative environment or being given a project, whether it was in school, whether it's at work, just in so many different places where people are like, okay, here's a project, your team go. Or maybe we're a team from before and now we've been tasked with this new project and it's go. And one of the things that I think we had talked about in one of our earlier conversations as well was the was a gap that you had identified when you were coaching people about a challenge that you saw when teams get together to collaborate. So I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit on what some of the gaps were that you saw that led to the development of your workshop. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the story that led to it was I was actually working with a group um, at Rosetta Stone I was pausing for a second, just trying to make sure that I'm allowed to share this, but I am. Um, I was working with a group at Rosetta Stone uh, and I was running a design sprint for them. And at the time, this was a couple of years ago. And so at the time, when I talked about sprints and when I talked about design thinking, it was all about better, faster, de-risking, right? All of the sort of business metrics that um, I was being hired to to help those teams achieve. Um, and that's pretty easy to sell or it's easier to sell because it's, it's business language. And for me, as I was working with this team, um, a woman grabbed me, uh, my point of contact and one of the decision makers in the company. And she said, you know, this has been a really wonderful experience. Everyone seems so engaged and happy. And, you know, there's this new form of collaboration all these great things and, and other executives were coming into the space that we that we had for the week and really curious and excited about what we were doing there. And she said, you know, but I can't help thinking that with all of that goodness, the solutions that we came up with during the week have just felt, and she paused and she said, safe. She said, do you, do you know what I mean by that? And I'm like, you know, I have, I always have a suspicion about how much the bar has been pushed in terms of the idea generation and the conversations themselves in a, in a design sprint or in any kind of this new collaborative workshop setting. But it's, it was always hard for me to really put a finger on it and to know for certain. And so her sharing that in that moment was really eye-opening for me because I had a suspicion that they were excited about the ideas, but they were also the ideas that they had already been talking about. And so, it wasn't magical. I, you know, I, that was a trigger for me. And then, you know, that I'm a fan of Bernie Brown and I had been reading one of her books and she was talking about this idea of working, doing leadership development work with, you know, these global CEOs and, and major power players and, and corporate and corporations around the world. And she talked about this idea of slowing down and making time for people to be heard and to be seen and that being the first step and, and being vulnerable, she talks a lot about shame and vulnerability, and that being the first step to allow those teams to unlock the, the next set of conversations, the big ideas, the, so all those business metrics. And it was for me, that was a big light bulb moment. And I connected it back to my experience with Rosetta Stone. And I asked myself, what if I had made time for the people in that room to not just learn a sprint and execute the sprint and get to the finish line, but to actually appreciate 
their time and coming together and celebrating this, this new way of working. Um, and so I began experimenting, you know, like continuing to pour into Brene Brown's work as, as a leadership development coach, um, working with my coach and just, I kept seeing these patterns of slowing down, making time for people, letting people feel heard and seen. And um, I experimented with it in an, in a sprint that I did with a team in San Francisco uh, in the summer of last year, right before you came to the workshop. And um, it was the first time that I was totally panicked that I was introducing this. I didn't even tell the client that we were going to spend one of the first days of the workshop of, of the program doing this team dynamic workshop. Um, the morning of racked with fear. I was like, just what are you doing? Get rid of this. Just get into the sprint. And I, I pushed through that fear and the team, uh, one of the team members at dinner that night, they were asking me, they had read the sprint book and they said, you know, this, none of this stuff was in the book. Why, why did you decide to do it? And I retold the story and they're like, it's amazing because, um, they said, I couldn't imagine doing it any differently because like I was told, you know, they said I was not ready to, to think about like what innovation meant. And I didn't even, I wasn't really sure how I was going to work with some of these people. And with some of these people, they had a little bit of past trauma. So just allowing for a four hour time for that team and each member of the team to just come together and share what's important to them, share some of their concerns. Um, really, I really changed, I think, the, the outcome of the overall program. And for me, then it was no looking back at that point. Jay, can I pause you for one second? Because just in case the audience isn't aware, I want you to do two things for me. Can you first of all tell us what a sprint is? Mm -hmm. And then I'd love for you to tell us what you mean when you say people had experienced trauma, because I think a lot of people are going to really resonate with that. Sure. So when I talk about sprint, um, I'm talking about a design sprint. That's for me, <clears throat> I call design sprint a recipe of design thinking. So the design sprint came out of uh, Google. Um, and there's, there's a couple of schools of thought on what a sprint looks like inside of Google. The more popular version is the one that Jake Knapp wrote a book about called sprint. Um, and the, the construct is that you, you get a, a bunch of people together in a room and people that are not typically used to being in the same space to ideate new products and services. So you have your designers and your engineers and your architects architects and your marketing people and, and people from operations and legal, all these people that have these different skill sets and stories and experiences around a problem that you're trying to solve. And you put them in this space and the design sprint invites a structure where the group of people gain a common understanding of the problem that they're, they're there to solve. There's a chance for them to put forward an interesting solution to solve that problem then the group comes together to decide upon the top one or two most promising, most interesting solutions. And then they spend the rest of the time in, in by the textbook version, the rest of the five days designing a prototype that they'll then end the sprint testing with targeted users. Um, people that are experiencing that problem out in the real world to get their feedback and sort of rapid uh, ideation on the solution that they had come up with. So, that's five days. And that's for somebody that like myself that comes from the corporate world that was used to working in one and two year cycles. The idea of 
coming to a solution and prototyping it and getting feedback on it in the span of three or four or five days is really, really exciting. But, but it's also, um, it's jarring and it's very polarizing. So for me, my initial reaction to that was that's, that's impossible or that's, that's garbage. You know, what are you really going to find a value in the span of five days? Um, and so that, so that to answer the first question, that is when I'm talking about a sprint, that is what, um, that's what a, a design sprint is. Did you want to unpack, did, did you want to no, unpack that a little bit more? No, I think that's absolutely fantastic. And I think it really puts into context why trust becomes even more essential and what you're talking about becomes even more essential when you've got people in a room for five days and they've got to come up with something. Um, but the second one I wanted you to address before we moved on was what you mean when you say trauma. And I think that will transition back into mm -hmm. your story. Yeah. So there's all sorts of stories. Um, and at first I was completely unaware that they were happening around me because again, my focus and my goal my objective was you hired me to get you through a sprint and to figure out the next iteration of your product or your service. And the sprint is really good at, at figuring that out. Um, but when I stopped to slow down to see the person that had checked out halfway through the sprint or the person that had went from excited with lots of good ideas to quiet and passive and sort of like even moved physically in the room to a quieter spot and I had lost their voice in the sprint. I had no idea how to bring them back into it because I had not made space for them to begin with. And it, all of everything that I would do from there was recovery work just to make them feel safe again and get, and bring them back into the team. Um, but doing that proactively and giving people that space up front is where a lot of the, you, a lot of the, it's not magic. That's a, that's a poor way of putting it. That's where a lot of um, the gains on it become much more expansive. And so when I talk about trauma, there's, as, as human beings, we're working in these environments where there's a lot of pressure on us to deliver. And so, um, for example, I was in a sprint and a woman was riffing off her idea and her boss came up behind her um, and she, sorry, this woman was at a, uh, at a whiteboard sort of drawing out what her idea was looking like. And she had a couple of people on the team, she was junior. There were a couple of people on the team that were sort of, oh, that's really interesting. What about this, what about that? And her boss came up behind her, took the marker out of her hand and, oh, wow. and started drawing it differently. I lost that, the, the junior uh, program designer who that happened to, I, I lost her for the sprint. I could not get her back into the sprint. She was totally checked out after that. And so what if I had made space for her to talk about some of the things that she had experienced and some of the things, some of the boundaries for her that she wanted to make sure of and, and avoid during the sprint and what, what was she really looking to get out of this process together? Um, and there's a million other examples of that happening. So trauma can come in, in so many different forms and it's, um, it's really, it's really interesting when you give people that space to just talk about it up front, because I think they do feel a lot more heard, a lot more seen, and they are, their walls will come down. And when the walls come down, you and I are fans of Brene, you know, when those walls come down, the ability to create and innovate together skyrockets from there. But it's really Absolutely. hard because nobody gives you permission to make time and space for that. 
Yes. If anything, and I think we talked about this, if anything, it's usually the reflection time, that being seen, that being heard time, your processing time is usually where it's like, okay, if we have time, we'll get to that. Or we can just cut this part of it because we need to do the talking part of something. And I, I, one of the things I really appreciated about that is, you know, I think growing up, so many people have lost their creative confidence as is that when you are then placed in those environments where you have a story where like the one you just shared about that lady and her boss coming up in the middle, I mean, it just really is sort of like, you know, that last straw for so many people. So I think there's a lot of people that are hesitant to share ideas or hesitant to collaborate in a, you know, more meaningful in a deeper way, like you were saying. And so tell us a little bit about what it is you've designed to be able to solve for that. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I heard a woman share a story once as she was introducing an activity. And she said, how many of you, she, you know, there were 10 of us in a room and she said, how many of you are designers? And, you know, a couple hands in the room went up. And she said, how many of you are artists? And I think of those two hands or three hands, one remained up. And she's like, really? so, she's like, so what's interesting is if you ask the same question to a class of first graders, who here is an artist, every hand in the room goes up. And they're so right. proud, you know, of their, of their doodle, of their cat laying on the floor, you know, whatever it is. Um, and we lose that, we, we, we do, through, through um, trauma, through, you know, being picked on, through fear, you know, the own, our own voices and, and our own imposter syndrome, and just watching other people do things differently and better, we start to, we withdraw it inside and we stop. Um, we stop raising our hands. So there's a lot of different ways that you can get people to lean back into that, into that muscle. And it is a muscle. My coach continually reminds me whenever I'm rumbling with certain topics that most of the stuff that we rumble with is a muscle and it needs work. And a lot of these muscles are weak because we don't, we don't use them often. So laughter is always a good, a good way to let people bring some of the walls down, but it's not always appropriate. And so like we could do a total tangent and talk about the five archetypes that I, I, I work with with my coach. But most, the most salient point there is that one of the archetypes is the fool. And so you can use the fool, but you have to use him, him or her carefully. Oh. And that is, you know, you can make people laugh. You can, you can make people, you know, you can fall on the sword and, and be humble and make it okay to look, to look silly and look foolish. But sometimes that's not appropriate. Sometimes it's a serious topic. Um, you know, if you do a workshop where you're trying to solve for coronavirus, starting off with a, a fun and lightweight and, and laughing activity, maybe it's okay. Maybe people need to laugh, but maybe it's just not appropriate timing. So in those cases, um, maybe it's leaning on a little bit more of authenticity and vulnerability. You know, what, why are we, why are we here today? And what's really scary about this? What are some of the reasons that, what are some of the things that we should spend time on and where, where are some things that we should avoid what would what would failure and what would success look like but really just opening up to questions and curiosity so that people can lean into that um there's you know that there's a i think there's a few different ways but the most important thing is just designing time in that space and in that conversation for people to to raise their hand and feel heard and show their ugly drawing of their little cat no <laughs> So tell us, a little, so, okay, so when I first came into your workshop and you had us sit in these random groups with people we had, we barely knew and gave us this activity that I want you to talk about, the ICBD, 
I was like, there's no way people are going to share. Like there's just no way. And it ended up probably being one of the most vulnerable conversations I've ever been a part of. And no one even realized it in the minute because at the end, everyone was like, so by the way, everything we said here was confidential, correct? <laughs> it, that confidentiality was such an afterthought for people. It just blew my mind. And it really made me realize, and you know, it was one of my biggest takeaways was how much people want to share, how much people want to do things. But again, how do we provide those systems and structures? So can you tell us a little bit about how you became familiar with ICBD, why you use it and what it is? Yeah. Well, so in this journey of exploring ways to bring people together, to bring walls down, um, I sort of backed into the definition of what I was doing, which was team dynamic work. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of people with really smart, ideas and frameworks and tools to enable these conversations to happen. Um, one of those is a, is a, a husband and wife couple, I believe they're married, um, named Alex Jamison and Bob Gower. And their framework is called Intentions, Concerns, Boundaries, and Dreams. And when I was preparing for that conference that, that we went to together in the workshop that you were at, um, I had met with Kai Haley, who who organizes the event. And I said, you know, I'm really, I've been experimenting with different frameworks because I really struggle to get teams to, to lean into the tough conversations. And I had done some lightweight activities. I had done like exercises like embarrassing stories where you sit in a circle and each person spends 30 seconds to 60 seconds just telling an embarrassing story to start off the day. And that, there, that it really is a quick and fun way to disarm people. But like I said before, sometimes that starting off on that with humor, especially when you're in a group of strangers and you really don't want to, to go down that path quite yet, you're not ready to laugh with a stranger, then what, what are the, some of the other ways that we could bring those walls down? So I was experimenting and looking for, for tools to be able to bring groups of people together um, and what you experienced was 60 people in a workshop. Some of the folks knew each other, but I don't think you know, intimately, people were really aware of who they were. So my goal in running that session with Holly, um, Holly May Mahoney, who was my counterpart in the workshop, our goal was to, Kai kept throwing more and more challenges at us. It was going to be a 10-person session, then a 20-person session. Um, it was going to be in like a totally private, you know, quiet space. It turned out to be like the main space of the workshop. It turned into a 60 person conference. And at first I was kind of like scratching at the wall saying, Oh God, you know, this, is, this isn't what we signed up for. This is supposed to be quiet and intimate. But I said, you know, sometimes that is the challenge that we're up against because we all work in these large companies or a lot of us work in these large companies and we're working with strangers all the time. So we put you all in pods of four uh, total strangers. Um, I even did a little bit of due diligence to make sure that people that I knew were going to be friends, that I knew that were friends that were going to be in the session together were, were um, split up. So, oh, it was, clever. so it was really interesting to watch that take shape. Um, the, the goal of it, of the framework itself is, and it's very design thinking oriented. So in, in any kind of feedback session that you do that, uses some of the design thinking principles. There's a lot of positivity and reflection and acknowledgement of what that person did well. 
And then, you know, there's the deltas of, of things that, what would it look like if, you know, I'd like to see more of this happen, or I wish that you had done this a little bit differently. And then there's some of that curiosity of what would this look like if I took this work forward or if we took this work forward together. And what I really appreciated when I looked into the ICBD is that it used a lot of the same construct. So the, you start off by talking about your intentions. So these are typically very straightforward tact tactical things that you're looking to get, get out of a project or a new team or a new relationship that you're going into. And you can use the framework for a lot of different things. It could be, so like if you're going into a project or you're starting a new venture, it could be to make money or to expand brand awareness or something, you know, like just these are the specific things that I'm hoping to get out of this experience. Um, then you shift into boundaries, uh, I'm sorry, concerns. And so this becomes a little bit harder for people because people aren't used to sharing the things that, because there's fear, uh, concern is, is, is rooted in fear and that's harder for people to lean into and share. So you, you talk about the things that worry you. Um, what could go wrong for us? What, what would it look like if this you know, failed for me? What am I really concerned about in that way? And then you ratchet it up even another level by talking about your boundaries. And for me, this is a, we talk about muscles. This is a really, really weak muscle for me. And I'm at 43, I'm trying to learn how to set boundaries. But, you know, what do I need to be at my best? Or what's going to be a, a, basically a deal breaker if we start to go down a path? And sharing those boundaries, especially with strangers, especially when you don't even know what could or could not go wrong. I mean, for me, the problem with setting boundaries is that I feel like I'm being negative. Right? Like I have a history of people telling me you're being negative, you're being pessimistic, look on the bright side of things. But that's really hard when you're talking about boundaries. These are, these are rules that you need to be at your best. And so when you look at them in that light, it's a little bit differently than just complaining about something. Because you're really trying to protect yourself and the team from going down a path that you know you're not going to be at your best. And then, do you? go ahead. I, I, I love that. Actually, yeah, no, let's pause because I think in the moment people are so interested in that, especially. Do you have a story about when setting boundaries allowed a group to be successful? Because I think you're right. I think a lot of people really struggle with the boundary part because we think we can do it all, give it all, and either we get burnt out or we don't get the results we need and we haven't given ourselves the time and space to do, just give ourselves that grace. So I'm just curious to know what strategies you have or stories where a group emerged more successful because they set boundaries for themselves. Mm. Yeah. You know, I'm more inclined to tell a personal story because I think yeah, people, you want. people can relate to personal stories. And I, I like being the, the vulnerable guy to tell a personal story. Um, so I'm a, I'm a dad of two boys and I have, um, they're both, they both play competitive soccer. Um, and, there's a mom on one of the teams that was a little bit of a tyrant. And, um, you know, you're on the sideline to cheer on your kids. And, and this could be a boss. So this woman could be a boss. It could be a colleague. So it doesn't matter if it's a soccer mom. Um, and, right. you know, so like the experience for me of going and watching my son play soccer is something that I, I really, I, I plan my, almost my entire work life around. And to get there and listen to this woman kind of like berate the team, especially talk negatively about my own kid, talk about your own kid, don't, don't focus on mine. 
is really hard. And I had not set that boundary for her. And instead, so I acted like most adults or feigning adults that are really just kind of grown children. I acted like most of us would. I would give her the stink eye. I would separate myself from her. You know, I would complain about her to other parents. And I actually worked through this with my coach. And he had me call her. He had me, you know, send her a text to give her a heads up. So I framed the conversation with her. And then I had a conversation with her where, where I acknowledged her. And I said, you know, I've, I've noticed that I've been separating myself. And really, if you felt like a negativity from me, it's, I'm really sorry about that. I've, I've noticed that I've been treating you poorly because during the game, it's really important to me to be, to be able to enjoy our kids playing. And I just kind of like acknowledged her and, and was totally open and honest about what her reactions triggered in me. And our relationship, this woman and I has, I would have never seen our relationship going in this direction. It's, um, it's completely changed. And people look to me and they, they, they've actually called me and said, what did you say to her? Because they expected that I called her and read her the riot act. And instead I just set a boundary with her while honoring her and acknowledging her and honoring our kids as well. And it was a total game changer. And for me, that was really eye-opening. The ability to set my own personal boundary without disrespecting the other person and really kind of like honoring the relationship between the two of you. And I love that because I think it's such a great way to also model for kids in your situation, or if you're in the workplace, model for other people what good conversation can look like. We had Daniel Stillman on last week talking about conversation design. And I think, again, so many of us, you know, when you talk about that trauma, whether it's pushing forward your own idea, whether it's, you know, aggressively getting angry at someone, that strategy that you just described, I think is so rare, but like you just showed so powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, the, the one other story I have um, of, of in the workplace is when I was doing interviews to prepare for a sprint and one woman and her boss were in the conference room together. And I was like, Oh, these are supposed to be one-on-one -on -one so that you can really, you know, you, you can really let loose and tell me what's happening in your world and what you want to work through and what you want to avoid. And the boss raised her hand and she, she kind of like shushed me. I was like, Oh boy. Um, it's fine. We're friends. We're going to, we'll do this together. Like we totally trust one another. And within five minutes, that other woman, the quote unquote subordinate was very low on energy. Um, and I, I knew right away. And I was like, should we pause? I said, should we do this separately? And the other woman said, yes, actually, I would appreciate if we did that. And the other, and, and the boss looked at her kind of like confused and she's like, why is there something did I offend you? It was very hard to recover from that. And so like, you know, honoring the space that people are allowed to think independently and then bring their ideas together, but allowing them that initial space to have their own thoughts and set their own intentions and boundaries and dreams and all those other things is, is really, really important. Absolutely. Okay. So we stopped at the, cons no, we stopped at boundaries. Stopped at the best one. We didn't do dreams yet. Yes, I know. We're going to do the best one for last. Because this is one that I think not enough people spend the time really thinking about. Like we're so fixated on our concerns that we don't always like, like our dreams almost get lost in the background. Or sometimes we've just completely forgotten what they even are mm -hmm. in like the monotony of the day-to-day -day and whatnot. So go ahead. Tell us about the last one. Yeah. I So um, Daniel's my buddy. Daniel and I run um, the Innovation Leadership Accelerator. So we actually just, this was 
yesterday. We just did the ICBD yesterday for the future of ILA together. And um, it was the first time that I actually used the framework myself on my own venture versus you know doing it as a, as a facilitator or a trainer. And when I got to the part about dreams, you know, I do this, I, I meditate and I, you know, there's visioning work that you can do. And it's really, really hard for me to envision what a, an abundant future would look like for myself. Um, you know, the demons and the voices just kind of squash my dreams constantly. But when you have a, have an interface, a post-it or a piece of paper or a digital whiteboard or something that you can start to write your dreams down. It's really, it's amazing how much it unlocks in, in you. And so as I was doing dreams for this program that we're building together, um, I got, so, I got really excited and I started to like, it became very, very, the, the visualization was very clear um, because the, 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 the guiding questions behind this is, what would it look like if this is like a tremendous success? You know, what will have shifted for us, for me, for, for the business, for the venture that we're building together? And I got really excited. And then when I shared it with him, I did feel there were parts where I felt apologetic and I felt like a little bit silly, um, which he's the last person in the world that would make me feel silly about it. But there, there was something there that I noticed where it's like, I think your question touched upon it, which is like, we don't give ourselves enough time to talk about our dreams because you feel a little childish, you know, you calling it a dream. Um, and it is the one where people squirm a little bit about. I've even had, I had one group ask me to change the name from dreams to something else, like call it objectives really? or something like that. You know, like trying to, to reframe it in business jargon right. instead of just allowing it to be what it is it's a dream it's like let's let's really think wildly and boldly right and you know it's funny i actually you know a lot of times in the um in like design thinking workshops that i'll do and that i've seen others do as well we always focus on what the challenges are and then we you know design you know problem statements how are we going to solve for these challenges and based off of your workshop, one of the things I actually tweaked was having people design for their dreams. So if you were actually going to make this dream happen, what would you design for? What would it look like? And then took them through those steps in that way. And I have to say it completely changed the dynamic of just how the group was thinking and what they were doing. And it was incredible. That's great. You know what it reminds me of? Um, I, write, I write gratitude statements. I try to every morning. And I used to write a list of, I, I was more about volume because I was trying to like tweak the muscle. So I would put 10 or 15 thoughts down on paper or, or whatever it was, just however I was capturing them. And I was like, okay, I got to get to 10, 10, 10, 10, 10 the magic number. And instead, what I've been doing lately for the last year or so is just doing one or two. And, in, and instead of doing volume, going deep into that, uh, that, that sentiment about why I'm grateful about that. So not just like I'm grateful for because it's sunny out or I'm grateful because I'm going to see my son's soccer game today, but like what it, what it actually unlocks for me. Why am I, why is that really important to me? Really kind of going a level or two deeper. So I'm, I'm proud of you for taking this and, and making people really kind of dive into the dream. Yeah, no, I think it just changes the dynamic. I think so many of us have just forgotten what dreams are. And you know, one of my like sort of like pet peeves a little bit is how a lot of people think that dreams or designing their own way of life or work is for like the next generation. 
um, living a life of purpose is for the next generation, as if that's like something new. But I think at our core, humans want to live a life of purpose, whether you're 80, whether you're 50, whether you're 40, or whether you're 10 or five. And I think today's, like, I think just the way the world is today, we have the luxury of thinking in that way that I think previous generations just didn't. And so I always like to remind people that like, you know, we can all dream. We all want to live a life of purpose. It's not just something we're passing on or some new trend for the next generation. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> so one of the things that I found, or, you know, I think our conversation was just so timely, was if we struggle to have these kinds of collaborative environments or really struggle to create these authentic collaborative environments face-to-face -face when we're all together, with so many of us switching to remote environments, where emotions are high, fear is high, uncertainty is high. What role does this strategy play or how can it help people as they think about shifting to remote work or remote environments? Yeah, well, I think, so, you know, the thing that I'm most surprised about over this past week in particular is I've been, um, I started a new haircut uh, 10 years ago and I have a home office. There were, uh, there were periods of time where I had an, uh, I had a shared space out in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Um, and I was around other human beings, but for the majority of my time I was alone and I had, you know, I had a team, I had an office in Romania. Then my part, my former business partner had an office in Berlin. So internally at New Haircut, 30 people at, at one point, we were totally distributed. Um, and then we were working with clients all over the globe. And so most of my life for the last 10 years has been this, this setup. It's been me on Zoom calls or Skype calls before that. It's been exploring tools like Mural and Miro. Um, and it's been, it's been getting familiar with a lot of these, these practices that come with the tools themselves. Because when you open up the box and you start using the tool, you take with you all of the, uh, the methods and practices that worked in real life or worked in whatever form that you're working with. So the thing that I've been most surprised about is actually just how much the world is still so uncomfortable with this, this idea of working remotely. I actually, I guess through my own bias and assumption, I had assumed that the world had, had been experimenting with this stuff in the background. And when the day came that they were forced to work remotely, that they would have a lot more of this stuff figured out. And it seems that it's not there yet because people are really scrambling. And I know that it feels more panicked because there's this virus and this sort of like the, the global health of, of the world is and the economy behind it. So there's all this stuff that's kind of lumped into this conversation. But I'm just actually surprised that it's it, we're still at the stage that we're at and people are, are scrambling as much as they are to figure it out. Absolutely. And I think they always say that, right? About like, there's a lot of people out there who are doing certain things and like what's normal to you is so disruptive or so new to somebody else, which is why like, it's so funny, you know, it's times like this, like you really remember like, wow, all that content that I've been creating that I thought nobody was listening or nobody was reading, or am I just too ahead of the curve or you know, there's just all these things, or does anybody even care about learning about any of this? Because like you're saying, when we do things that are normal to us, we just assume that everybody else does them as well. But I think now, you know, 
people like yourself who have been designing, you know, toolkits and been designing resources and have been really thinking through how this can be done effectively. Um, I think a lot of people are really going to be turning to you guys. And so, yeah, let's let go ahead and tell us a little bit about how, why trust is so important when you're working in remote environments or can it even be achieved in a remote environment? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's still, there's still a human behind the screen. Do you have to do a little bit more work to get people over the, the hurdle for sure. So I think it's a little bit more prep work in, in my experience, establishing trust, keeping engagement. Those are sort of two of the big ones when people want to, to hear about quote unquote best practices of shifting events and conferences and workshops online. They're most concerned with how can I get people to show up and trust me? And then how can I keep people engaged? And so actually slowing everything down which is a lot of what I think you and I have been talking about, giving space for people and not making it such a, like what you can do in a one hour in person, in real life workshop with a group of people that are comfortable working with one another, comfortable with the physical space that they're working within. Maybe some of even their old notes are still up on a whiteboard. And now you're all on this, on your screen, on your 13 inch screen in a box. Um, allowing there to be a little bit of uncertainty about what this is going to look like and allow the group to develop their own new ways of working together and new habits. The, the best way to do that is to actually slow down and to chunk things out over time, as opposed to trying to ratchet things up and get more done. Um, I, and do you think this would be on like, you know, one of the new terms that I think I'm seeing people talk a lot about a little bit more or really try to really define out a little bit more is the concept of like design leadership. So do you think that this would fall like, like, who do you think would best be suited to lead or be able to facilitate that environment? I think anyone that's up for the task, really, because it's, it's kind of open game at this point. Um, I, I think design leadership is, uh, is a really popular term because and it's an important term because I think the concept of design is becoming more and more important. Not only you talk with Daniel, so not only in terms of the products and services that we create, but in the conversations that we're having with one another. And so um, designers being asked to do that makes sense because you know that's in their title and that's and they're already using some of these tools. They they use inquiry and they use empathy right? And because that's part of how they figure out how they're going to design solutions for other people. But I, in terms of like, who are the best people to be facilitating and leading this new conversation and these new ways of establishing trust, especially as we're moving to this more remote, um, remote way of, of life and work, I think it's really anybody that wants to raise their hand and be a part of it and, and lead it. I mean, I did it a couple of years ago just because I was forced to do it for some of the work that I was doing with clients that couldn't all be in the same physical, physical space. So I fell into this by accident, but what I learned from it was that people will show up. And sometimes the conversation is even more powerful because two people don't need to necessarily sit across a table from one another and then go to lunch together if they just had a really heated and contentious negotiation about something. They could say their piece they could turn off their camera, they could type it on a post-it, you know, and then be at peace with it and kind of let, to, to let it be. So there's all these new forms of collaboration that people are experimenting with. I think anyone that is 
going to keep up with the tools that are there for us and the interfaces that are supporting these new ways of working, then it's, it's up to you to, to design those collaborations together. I don't think anyone is better suited to do that. I think it's just people that are willing to realize that the world is shifting a little bit. I love that because I think it's one of the things that's just democratize people's opportunities and just to think it's just democratized leadership. I think, you know, it's no longer about wait for one person to climb up the ladder and then make an impact. Like you said, it's anyone who's willing to step up. And it was one of my favorite quotes from uh, my conversation with Daniel was like, you know, the world needs your, like your conversational leadership skills right now. And so, yeah, I just think that's such an important point to just drive home for people is that like don't wait for somebody else like if you feel like you are comfortable having that conversation and you are comfortable leading that group or just being the one to just even open the floor for others i think that's um so important so i love that mm -hmm. yeah yeah my coach has an interesting definition of leadership um which maybe is even more important these days um and it goes something like Leadership is defined as the quality of specificity in acknowledging the other. And that always takes a couple cycles for people to have to repeat that to themselves a couple times. What I've learned in coaching with my coach for 55 sessions now is that basically as a leader, your opportunity to demonstrate leadership, you can do it on your own. You can close the door and you can, meditate and go go inside and feel at peace with yourself but your ability to lead is acknowledged and becomes real when other people see it so doing that work and and doing it in a space and these mediums that are new and shaky and uncomfortable and there's internet lag and there's and there's technical failure is really really uncomfortable so i think to go back to your last question, I think the people that stand up now and say, this is the form that I, this is, this is the opportunity for me to be a leader in new and uncertain times, I think is really, really powerful. I think there's a lot of opportunity for people to really go far with this conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, like I'll have you share like where people can find things because I know you guys have been putting out a lot of amazing resources around this topic, not just recently, but, you know, for months now. Um, so one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, and this kind of really fits in line with just, you know, everything you've shared about being an innovation coach and just the different things that you've picked up on and highlighted is, and especially if we're thinking about how people are having those conversations and the types of challenges they're thinking about solving for right now. One of the things that you recently came out with was a problem framing toolkit. Tell us a little bit about problem framing, what it is, and the gaps that, again, you saw that led you to create this. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so problem framing is a, is a, it's a business strategy practice. And what I mean by that is what it helps you come to terms with, or the question it helps you answer is what problems are interesting to us as a company and how do those connect to the humans that would potentially consume the products and services that would come about from them. So when groups are in the mindset of, should we work on this? Is this a space that we should spend time and money and attention on? Problem framing becomes a really great practice and framework for you to have that conversation. And it provides that interface for you to structure the conversation and move the conversation through a series of touch points and milestones where 
you get to the point where there's a space, an ecosystem of opportunities that you're curious about working through, right? So most companies have this roadmap or this backlog or this, this large vision statement, um, and they're not sure what within that, that North Star they want to tackle first. So problem framing becomes this process that you can use to explore that ecosystem of opportunities and get to the point where you articulate one problem, one opportunity, and I always use those interchangeably, one opportunity and challenge that would create impact for the company. So you check all those boxes in terms of business metrics, but also would solve a pain for a human that you're, that is, is sort of in your gaze. So you're bringing together those two constituents. And that in, in that space is where innovation actually exists. The space between where you solve a big, hairy challenge for your company, your organization, but you also solve a really important pain point for the humans that are experiencing that problem today. And the, the, the way that we found framing was um, through running design sprints. So the way that I unpack design sprints from framing is that a design sprint is a really beautiful, highly structured and efficient process when you're trying to figure out a solution to a specific problem. But what it's not so great about, what's not so great at doing is telling you that the problem is actually worth solving. And so that's where framing comes in. Framing is the perfect input for a design sprint because what a design sprint, design sprint or any kind of solution um, validation is, is looking for is a really well articulated problem statement on a problem that's important and deserves some attention on. And so the reason I created the toolkit was, um, I think what's happening, at least for me, is I think design thinking and the concept of design and sort of facilitation, and again, this might be me being biased and assuming that everyone in the world cares about facilitation. But what I'm, my experience is that a lot more people are becoming aware that workshops and facilitation and designing conversations, designing outcomes is, is just as important as designing the products and services that come out of those conversations. Um, so I wanted, to, I wanted to create and sort of give to folks the tools and the practices and the templates that I, I had used to frame those conversations. Uh, and that's where the toolkit came from. It came from the objective was to hand, hand off all the, all the thinking and experience and insights that I had been using over the years to run problem framing workshops and give it to people and empower them to do it for themselves. Yeah. And I love that because, you know, I, it's so funny after I came to, to know, and really I came to know this community, the, the sprint community through you, I stepped back and I was like, wow, like in education, we have just been doing design thinking all wrong. And so much of it is because like, you'll get people together and it's more about like, going through the motions or the going through the five steps, you know? Um, but one of the things that I really appreciated about the whole problem framing concept was so many times people come in and they'll come up with a problem on the spot or they'll try to like, you know, empathize with different groups, but they haven't actually spoken to all of those different groups. So a lot of it is based on like assumptions and then you'll start going down the process and it's like, well, you know, if you're, it's like, you know, they always say like, you know, don't go searching for solutions, like 
don't design solutions in search of a problem or something along those lines. And I find like that's what happens a lot of the time. And so I think actually taking the time, you're right, to step back and really frame what problem it is that we're trying to solve for and taking the time to do that then ultimately allows your sprint to be a lot more successful in terms of the outcomes. Yeah. Um, that yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, I think teams still operate in the way that they've been operating for, for generations, which is the, the challenges and the, and the problems that teams of people are asked to work on are the things that are most, you know, hitting close to home for the executives that are responsible for deciding on the strategy and the vision. And so they, they pick the problems that are most relevant to them. The, and that could be the customer segment that they want to improve the most. A lot of it is more, it's, it's very internally focused. So when I ask a group, you know, what, what's the problem that you're trying to work on? It's, well, we're trying to improve onboarding. Or um, we launched this, we launched this, um, this, digital, this digital mobile experience last year, and we're not really seeing the uptick in engagement that we we're hoping for. So the, the user experience is broken. Can you help us fix that? And I'm, and my question always back to them is what is the, what's the human problem behind that? Because all that you're articulating to me is your problem of increasing sales, increasing brand awareness, you know, Im improving engagement inside the platform. But the humans that are paying for your products and services don't really care about that. They just care that you're solving their problems. And so problem framing, brings those two things together because you can't ignore the executive and the things that are important to the company because then you're just innovating for the sake of something that the company may never fund but you also can't ignore the human that's going to pay or, or subscribe to that product or service so problem framing what i love about it is that it brings together it maps it sort of overlays those two those two constituents to find the thing the problem that the company is most excited about and the problem that's also causing the most pain for the person and I love that because I think it goes to show that the two aren't mutually exclusive, that you can design for both of them in mind. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, so designers are really, designers are the people that have been driving for voice of the customer and customer experience and user experience. And, and I think the world has started to listen to them, but you can't ignore the company behind it because those are the, the executives and the stakeholders and the ones that are funding all this work that you're going to spend the next six to 12 months working on it needs to align back to some, some kind of company strategy. So bringing those two together, together in the conversation is exactly the point of it. Absolutely, I love that. So you, you bring up some interesting points about how a lot of people are still traditional in a lot of their ways. And I think I've talked to you before about how a lot of my research looks at how we can begin integrating design thinking in K-12 so that by the time, you know, this next generation is going into the workforce, they have these skills and they come in with that mindset and that understanding. Um, what are some of the gaps that you currently see as you're working with people in terms of skills that you would advise young people to focus in on? Yeah, facilitation. I think that, um, I think you may have said it something similar a few minutes ago. When, when I found myself in this world of coaching and consulting and leading workshops, it came in the form of leading a design sprint. And so my first sprint was a total mess. The second sprint was a little bit messier, a little, a little less messier. Um, and it went from there, you know, 20 sprints, I'm, I'm good and I've got it. And so the, the recipe became, it was like making eggs in the morning. It, I can do it on autopilot and I would show up to a sprint and feel really confident that I can move a group from A to B. 
And then I started layering in the team dynamic pieces and the framing pieces. And I, you know, I moved parts of the structure around, but it was all in a foundation that I was really, really comfortable with. And then I went and found myself in this world of facilitators, of people that are bringing groups of people together for all sorts of different reasons to, to figure out a new business strategy, to figure out why two groups um, are struggling to work well together or to do offsites and leadership development. And it was these people at the center of the room that weren't using a design sprint to, to lead those conversations. They were just using this power of like managing the conversation and creating these inter interfaces and, cr and allowing for space and allowing for quiet reflection, doing all these amazing things that I, I had never made time for in my practice as a design sprint facilitator. And so I think stepping out and understanding that the best design sprint masters or the best um, scrum, scrum masters or people that are sort of at the center of where these execution teams are creating products and services, at the center of them and what makes them really powerful and what allows them to empower the team and unlock the really important ideas from that team is this concept of facilitation. So um, it would be the one area that it's interesting because now I see groups that are hiring for a role of facilitator. I haven't seen anything like head of facilitation, but it's interesting. Facilitate, facilitator facilitation is starting to get seated into some of these roles, which is really interesting because I'm like, what does that actually mean? Um, it's, definitely a, it's definitely a gap in the industry because I think people um, assume that the meeting is just gonna take care of itself. I've even heard people say that about the sprint many, many times. The right. sprint will take care of itself but it can go horribly wrong if you don't design it. A conversation, a meeting, an email can go horribly wrong if you don't design it. So by all means, workshops, design sprints, problem framing sessions, all of these things need that central figure of a facilitator to make sure it's designed well, led well, organized, and that everybody in the room is heard. Absolutely. I mean, I think that brings us to a beautiful 180 because the conversation that you started off with alone with the story about the lady at Rosetta Stone and just what her concerns were and how she brought them up to you and just the concept of how do you design that conversation around trust and just having, I think, somebody from the outside as well come in and do that for the team, I think totally shifts the dynamic as well. So I think I just love how you brought that so beautifully full circle. But I wanted to um, ask you, because I think that's such a new concept, like you just shared, what are some of the things that you think make for a great facilitator? And just in your experience, because I feel like we all experience things differently, which I think is another really important thing, you know, like different people like resonate differently with different people as well. But in your experience, what are some things that you have found make somebody a good facilitator? So if a young person was listening and they were like, oh, facilitator, does that mean that I just give people directions? You know, but no, I, I know you're talking about more human elements. And mm, so yeah, what might this be for you? I think the big things are so... The most important thing as a facilitator is to make, to make everyone that's joining your session feel safe. And that comes in, in a lot of different ways. That can come in meeting with them beforehand. So there's a rapport between you and them of making sure that the way that you're going to structure your time together is well-intentioned because a lot of people are really afraid that you're going to waste their time. 
or you're going to make them do things that they're uncomfortable with or that they're not in position to really have an answer to. So as a facilitator, organizing, making sure that you've prepared a meeting or a workshop or a program where everyone feels like they understand why they're being invited to it, what the outcome looks like, that they're going to be heard and that they should be part of this is really important. Um, two, organizing the team themselves. So making sure that you have the right people in the room. So as workshops become a thing for groups, then it's going to become a little bit of a, people get very excited about it and now they want everyone on the team to be a part of it. So they start sending representatives from their department or their team to be a part of it. And then you have duplicate and triplicate people and it's just to learn the experience and they're not really contributing to the conversation. And what happens to those people because they don't have experience with the topic or the problem that's being um, talked about they check out because they can't really contribute to it and they feel kind of shitty. So making sure you have, as a facilitator, making sure you have the right people in the room. Designing the space, very, very important. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've had lengthy conversations with people about a venue where I was doing training or where I was going to hold a program and I got into the room and it was, you know, set up for, you know, your classic boardroom conversation. And this is where people are moving around the space You've been in many workshops, Saba. You know, moving around the space, being interactive, um, creating, you know, these, using foam board and creating these like interactions where people are kind of like demonstrating a process and walking through it. You know, so like really being clear and then really making sure that you design the space itself. And then when you're inside the workshop, you know, allowing like what you've been talking about this whole time, allowing for everybody to be heard. Um, and sometimes that's even going to be the person that's kicking the tires constantly and sort of the squeaky wheel because they do have something to say and they will unlock ideas from other people, but making sure that the quiet people are heard, you know, and the person that just has so many ideas, you know, in encouraging them to allow others to speak. So really managing the conversation inside of the workshop or the meeting. And then the follow-up, the follow-up is almost always the most important piece and making sure that people know how to close and how to reflect and doing that in a space where everyone can do it in that moment so that you can take it into the next set of activities and making sure that it's clear. You know, we expect we, our objective in coming into this was to get to here. Where do we think we are at this point and where do we want to go to next and allowing the group to come to a consensus so that you can close and you know where the next opening is. I love that. And I think as a facilitator, like, you know, I think this is just a quality you have as a teacher, you know, waiting for your kids to raise their hand. But I think it's so important sometimes to recognize that people may not immediately speak up. Do you find that when you're leading these that it takes time a little bit for people to warm up? So being comfortable with that silence? Yeah. Um, it is one of the hardest things to get over the hump with as a facilitator. Well, not maybe not for everybody. For me, yes. Um, uncomfortable silence is definitely something thing that you just have to. No, it does because every for. second feels so much longer. <laughs> yeah, because you feel like you need to fill the space with an answer or with right. the solution and allowing the group to just be silent, you know, like encouraging five minutes of quiet journaling for people to just like sit and reflect and think and then share with the group. It's so powerful. People want that and need that so much. They're never invited to just sit quietly and process and think. And that's really, right. really, really important. I love it. So Jay, let me ask you, 
We've talked about so many things. Is there anything in particular that you would like to share with the group, especially given everything that's happening right now that I didn't ask you? Mm, um, I think allow yourself and the team, allow yourself a little bit of space. I know that I can feel the pressure that people are under. Um, the outreach that I've gotten from people, I can feel the panic in their emails, in, in the conversations I'm having with them because they're being asked to rethink things that have been in the works for months. I, I, just, I just pivoted an event that I was going to do in person. I had to change it because of COVID-19. I had to change it online. That took me three hours to change a single event and I was frustrated. And then I had to like breathe and say, there are people that have been planning South by for a year that have had to like step away from that. So give yourself, if you're like redesigning the workshop that you've been designing for three weeks and now you've got to go and surface tools, allow yourself time to do that, but also give the team permission to call it a prototype. Call everything a prototype until it's not a prototype oh, anymore. I love that. Yeah, call your, your meeting. Don't, you know, like if you're gonna run your first sprint and now it has to be remote, maybe don't even call it a design sprint. Call it just like a remote prototype meeting, something just to allow, you know, call it the beta of what you're, you're rumbling with and, and trying to figure out. I absolutely love that. So Jay, if people want to find more of these resources and tools that you've shared, where is the best place for them to find you? Oh, uh, well, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn a whole bunch. Um, I do tend to post a lot of articles and videos there. I'm, I'm also trying to build a resource library inside of the problem framing toolkit which is videos and articles and all sorts of things there. So I think, you know, finding me on LinkedIn, I do a little bit of stuff on Twitter, um, inside the problem framing toolkit and the resource library that we just launched is also a good place to find all of uh, my latest ideas. There's also a medium publication where I've been writing um, for the last few years. So there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. Awesome. Well, Jay, thank you so much for sharing so many of your amazing strategies and experiences, both personal and professional, um, with us all today. Thanks, Saba. This has been great. I really appreciate this conversation. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, and I really hope that some of the strategies and tools, especially the ICBD, which I'll be linking and free and available online, help you as you transition and as you navigate the uncertainty that we are all currently grappling with. I also really want to extend an invitation to all of my listeners that if you have any questions, if you want to talk about anything, if you want to brainstorm and think through anything that you are currently going through, I really, really, really welcome any kind of conversation that you are interested in having as we navigate this together. I also really want to encourage you, as I always do, to reach out to the guests on this show. I always say this and I'm going to say it again. Trust me, it just absolutely makes someone's day when you reach out to them and tell them how an idea impacted you, how you enjoyed hearing something, or really even challenging an idea so that we can all grow and iterate and continue to learn and navigate and be successful to the best of our abilities through times like these. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, I'd love if you could rate and review the show. It seems to be how more people learn about it. And so if you do have the opportunity to take a few moments to do so, 
I would be so, so, so appreciative. As always, I will link all of the contact information and the resources shared both in the show notes. And I also, if you haven't seen, do a blog post to accompany each episode on my website at askmissq.com. That's A-S-K-M-S-Q.com. I'd also really love to hear about any ideas that you guys or topics that you guys are interested in hearing about right now or that you are interested in learning more about so that I can go out, find those individuals and bring their ideas to you. Stay safe, everyone. If you need anything at all, please don't hesitate to reach out. And here's to hoping that we emerge from this pandemic in the best way possible with new knowledge, new information, new insights, but above all, a greater sense of humanity as we work towards creating a better world for ourselves and those to come. Take care, everyone, and see you next week. It's your turn to join the conversation by sharing what you enjoyed or what questions you still have. In a world where time and attention are so valuable, thank you for choosing to listen and for being a part of our Sprint to Success with Design Thinking community. 